Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome to the podcast. Audio Jungle. G'day, Jason Hoyt here. If you enjoy a bit of shadow batting in the office or at home, then check out the ACC's BYC Cricket Podcast, available on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, mate. The greatest hits from the greatest artists. Gold. Streaming everywhere on iHeartRadio. Just search Gold FM. Somewhere in a private place, she packs a bag for outer space. And now she's waiting for the right kind of pilot to come. G'day New Zealand, this is The Country, I'm Jamie Mackay, she's Rowena Duncan and Tessa The Apprentice is back in the studio after a couple of days in the big smoke, Savage Garden. Tessa described it as a bit of a banger, I don't know if I'd call it that, but I think it's late 90s. Alright, uh, it's a moon theme today because on this day in 1969 New Zealand time, 21st of July, it was the 20th of July uh, American time, and Neil Armstrong of course um, set foot on the moon. The interesting story about all this, and you haven't heard my boring traveller history stories, Tessa. So you're going to be. This is why you've got a new person on the show, Jamie. To, to so bore you, her. Yes. No, but this is such fresh. a great story. They were that worried about getting them back safely because this song is to the moon and back. They were that worried about getting them back safely from the moon. The president of the, of the United States at the time, Tricky Dicky Nixon, Richard Nixon, had pre-recorded a television 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 get it out message confirming their death and oh. and and the worst thing about it was they were instructed if they had no chance of survival re-entering that they had to commit suicide so you know oh, well, the, that's, just it's awful and, 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 the, awful. and the, the computer power that got them to the moon and back in 1969 is the same computing power that is in your mobile phone. I can see you're enthralled by that story, Tessa. Rowena's <laughs> no, no, had I'm it before. interested. It's, uh, <laughs> Good yeah, on you. You'll keep your job. Amazing. <laughs> Anyhow, hey, on the show today, we're going to we've asked uh, someone, p- p- perhaps who knows, a potential future prime minister to step in for the prime minister. Jacinda's having the week off, and she probably deserves it. Dr. Tim Mackle joins us from Dairy NZ. Today's panel comes to you from the nation's badly flood-affected regions, the West Coast and Mid Canterbury. Yeah, Andy Thompson and Craig Wiggins. Mark Rivers, Chief Financial Officer from Fonterra, and Graham Law, a, a farmer from Taupo, and a member of the Rabobank Upper North Island Client Council on some of the cool things they're doing for farmers, not only Rabobank clients, but all New Zealand farmers at no cost. Right, let's introduce our first guest, shall we, Rowena? Yep, well, I don't have a liner for him, though. Jamie, no, but no, well, you've don't told him already him. that he could be the he, Prime Minister Well, one he day. might be. He was quick to jump at the chance to step mm-hmm. in for the Prime Minister, Chief Government Whip, Kieran McAnulty. G'day, Kieran. Good to have you on the country again. Thanks, Jamie. It's good to talk to you, and thanks for such an unhelpful welcome. Um, that's really <laughs> no going to go down well at home. No pressure. <laughs> you know, if the TAB was, because you used to be a TAB bookie, if they were running a book on 
Armstrong and Aldrin and Collins getting back alive. I reckon that uh, uh, would have been paying about, ooh, I reckon about seven dollars fifty. It was. It yeah, was far no, from a look, sure bet. It wouldn't have been good for sure. And you know, I actually, uh, despite your colleagues in, in the studio, I actually quite enjoyed your story. Thank and, you, Karen. <laughs> Thank you. <Suck> up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did. But you're right, Jamie, because it's so easy to forget, particularly those of us that weren't alive at the time, to think back at how big of a deal that was from a technology point of view. And also from a Cold War point of view, and I'm assuming that's part of the reason why they were asked to commit suicide unless they were captured and, and, and tortured for the information they had. So, you know, that's, that's an astonishing uh, an account, actually. So, no, it was good. Thank you. Thank you for enjoying my travel story to the moon and back. Look, the groundswell protests were on last Friday. I'm hearing whispers, Kieran McAnulty, Chief Government Whip, that the, 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 the reverberations from these protests have gone all the way to the ninth floor of the Beehive and your lot are actually sitting up and taking note. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, but it's always been our position that we are listening and uh, we've got examples of where feedback has resulted in adjustments of the proposals for sure and our relationships with the likes of Dairy NZ and, and Beef and Lamb and Federated Farmers has always been constructive but uh, you know I've been speaking to Damien uh, over the last couple of days on a number of occasions obviously he's very busy primarily being a local MP at the moment and, and my thoughts and prayers go to the people of Westport at the moment but um you know, he's heard and he made accounts that the Deputy Prime Minister and the Prime Minister has heard. You know, the point is that there is some many, actually, reasonable points that have been raised about the pace of change and about the volume of it, and that has been noticed. I'm pleased to hear that. Why did you come out against the protests so publicly before they happened? It looked like, to me, Kieran, like you were just doing what Jacinda told you. No, I, I, you'll note that there was no other comments from any other MPs. Uh, there was certainly no direction to make those comments. I made a decision not to attend the protest, and I outlined the reasons why. It wasn't out of lack of support for the primary sector. Uh, you yourself have said on numerous occasions on this show that I'm a genuine supporter of rural communities, and I, I stand by that. But I felt I owed it to people that if I wasn't going to go to the protest that I should provide an explanation why. So I posted it the night before. And in that, I emphasised many things, including the fact that our farmers are the most efficient producers in the world. I don't think that's acknowledged enough. And I also acknowledged that farmers aren't getting the acknowledgement from those that are quite happy to wade into the debate without knowing anything about it. And they are, they are painted with the same brush when the vast majority of them are actually on board with the direction, but they have some concerns about the practicality of it. That's see, see every, everyone's in agreement with where the end point is. It's just how we get there and the time frame. And it would appear to me that your mate David Parker, and I keep picking on him because he deserves it, is treating uh, hitting farmers with a big stick rather than using a bit of carrot. Come on, because Jacinda says be kind. On occasions, your government, Kieran, is not that kind to farmers. I think if you look at the uh, levels of financial support that have backed up these regulations and requirements, there's actually a fair bit of carrot as well as a bit of guidance as to where we need to go. And if you look at the comments that have been made by Dairy NZ and Beef and Lamb, acknowledging the Waka Ekenoa, a credible five-year plan, you know, there's so much consultation and engagement going on to get that industry-wide agreement. Uh, for, uh, sorry, the agreement from the industry bodies. 
But what I think that has come out of this and, and that I really wanted to be able to raise today is that uh, it's the extremities of the debate that's actually capturing the narrative, and, and, and I think that's unfortunate. And I want to call out the people that have come out using the protest as an opportunity to bash farmers. I don't think that's on. And all it does is rile people up, and no wonder farmers think that people are against them because those, those are the attitudes that get broadcast. And just like it is fair to say that those people that came to the protests with signs that were sexist and racist, they don't represent farmers, and we all know that, but those are the guys that get the attention. And so that it's exactly the same on both sides, and they're talking over each other and past each other, and it's doing no one any good. Hey, just a, a final or a couple of final questions for you. How's your offsider Kerry Allen getting on? Oh, I don't know how she does it. She's got more energy now than she did before she got crook, and um, she is most well, probably one of the most remarkable people I know. And I, I really stoked to be able to call her a good mate. But she's come back. We were all worried about it. Myself and my whips job, you know, we. Uh, moved caucus to a different room so that we had more space so that people could keep their distance from her. She walked in and she was hugging everyone. She's good as gold. And it's just so good to see. So, you know, um, I know that I can share this. She's asked us when we got the opportunity to thank people for sending in the messages of love and support because, you know, often when you're crook, it's the mind that needs the boosting and that's exactly what it gave her. Good on you. And one final question for you, putting on your bookies hat again. What would, what, what would the book TAB be paying at the moment for the Olympics to continue? Because it's on a knife edge at the moment. If they get many more cases of COVID within the village, I think it's game over. Someone told me uh, off the record, and this may, not, may or may not be true, but I'm going to throw it out there, that the Olympic movement or the Olympic committee needed to get five days into the Olympic Games to get the insurance or whatever so that it wasn't a complete financial washout. Would you, do you buy that conspiracy? theory? Well, we'd have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they have an obligation to the well-being of the athletes from all around the world and also the host nation. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that the, surely the odds for it being called off are certainly shortening. My personal view is that it should have been postponed, but as soon as the decision was made to carry on, you know, we've got to get behind our athletes. They are there representing our country and, uh, and they're going to give it their best. And we all know that this is the pinnacle of their career is to get to the Olympics. But I am worried and uh, I hope that uh, the Olympic Committee is able to keep it out because it would be a real shame for every country in the world that is participating to get caught up in that. Yeah, super spreader, the last thing we need. This has probably been the pinnacle of your career thus far, deputising <laughs> for the Prime Minister, Kieran. Maybe. I didn't know that I was, but um, well, you did. Every time I appear on the on the country is always a highlight. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Kieran McAnulty. There we go, Government Chief Whip, Labour MP for. Uh, yeah, the latest on the Olympics, though, uh, still a shroud of uncertainty over Tokyo. Organisers still haven't ruled out a last-minute cancellation. 71 athletes and accredited officials have already tested positive for COVID. All right, Tessa, the apprentice, is back in the studio. Hello. A couple of days in the big smoke. Good to see you back, Tessa. What did you learn? Well, I learnt a lot. Um, Auckland is a well. The office was huge to start with, but it was. It's uh, the mothership. It was the mothership. Um, pretty happy to be back here and just you know in my wee posse. So it was good. But um, yep, definitely learned a lot about you know the main 
what uh, NZME does. And yeah, Did you learn what Lashes used to do in his previous life? Um, that would have taken have, about two was. seconds, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, touched on a few things, but yeah. no, it was nice to um, yeah learn from learn from the big dogs up there. All right, but hey. really, they're down here. Yeah, well, <laughs> Everyone's sucking up to Jamie today. Yeah, My goodness. Good. Yeah. I wasn't talking about Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've got to talk to you, Tessa, after the show about coffee. That's another subject. <laughs> now, um, just on the subject of NZME and the mothership, of mm-hmm. course, we had a couple of texts or a few texts on this yesterday. Um, Martin Devlin, our friend and colleague, uh, we've worked with Martin for a long, long time, had a lot of fun with Martin. Yeah. He's nuts, but we love him. Um, and he's had his challenges, but we're so pleased that hopefully he's on the recovery path. Yeah. And we wish him all the best. And just from the country team, Aro, yep. we, we're looking forward to hearing Martin Devlin back on air. Yeah, and also just love and support to all of his friends and, and family up there as well that are supporting him, uh, as we can't do really from afar. So good on you. Yep. Up next, Dr Tim Mackle, a man who is doing God's work, going into bat for New Zealand farmers, <coughs> plus... We'll have a look at look for some solutions for the looming labour crisis in the primary sector. And if you don't believe there is one, you are ignoring the obvious. Dr Tim Mackle, Andy Thompson and Craig Wiggins, the panel, Mark Rivers from Fonterra and Graham Law before the end of the show. Dr Tim Mackle is the Chief Executive of Dairy NZ. He's also the voice of New Zealand Farming. Tim, before we talk about some of the labour issues facing the primary sector, I want to give you a pat on the back publicly for the work you're doing fronting on television programmes such as Q&A and News Hub Nation and representing the farmers of this country in a sane and rational manner. And that can't always be said of some of the people who are interviewing you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Um, yeah, just the job, mate, though. And uh, I guess when you're passionate and you believe in something, then uh, it makes it a lot easier. How are you getting on battling the government over the labour issues? Because this is a real issue. I'm hearing stories day after day, in fact, many times daily, about dairy farms that are heading into carving and they're understaffed. And this is not just an issue, obviously, for the dairy industry. It's right across the primary sector. It is, Jamie. And look, I'm deeply concerned about it too. I mean, I got an email from uh, some shearmokers yesterday, actually, and down south who are, are grappling with this issue too, just like so many. Um, so, uh, and, and as you say, carving has started in many places um, already. So it's, it's tough. I mean, we've had a couple of um, uh, good news uh, pieces with the government, you know, the, the 200 uh, dairy farm workers and their families. Um, that's taken a bit of time to, to work through because ultimately Dairy NZ has to take um, the applications for border class exemptions. That's how the rules work. Any sector, you know, that applies for a class exemption um, has to, if it gets approved, they then have to manage the process. So that's quite a new thing we'll be getting help from Yeah, yeah but Tim hang on there 200's all fine and dandy but we need more like 2,000 and that might be in Southland alone how many well, dairy workers are we short across the country? Well we think it's, it's the numbers between 2,000 and 4,000 and the difference between those numbers by our people uh, and their estimates is that 2,000 is sort of like what you do if you go and add up all the job vacancies 4,000 is what we think we should have if we were adequately staffed and of course we haven't been for the last few years to be frank Jamie so the number's big, and 200 is a drop, of course, and um, it's taken some time to work through that. We've got applications coming in. The other good piece of news was last Friday, 
um, the government decided to extend you know, the essential skills workers um, to two years on top of what they've got, which is good news, but that's about retaining, isn't it? It ain't about attracting, and we've still got the whole, it's not filling that gap. It's just helping us hold on to the ones that are here. Yeah, and COVID is obviously not at the fault of the government, and largely they've done a good job of keeping it out. Let's acknowledge that, but it's a costly exercise, isn't it, to bring in these 200 workers? Are we looking at, what, 10 grand a pop? Yeah, look, it could be 10 to upwards to 15 by the time, and, and that will put some off. But I guess if you can get a three-year visa, then, you know, spread that over that time period, it does make it a bit more attractive. But at the same time, you know, there is a fair bit of cost that's when they go through MIQ and, and get processed by immigration consultants and so on. Tim, what's your advice to dairy farmers or share milkers around the country who are finding themselves short-staffed heading into this most intense period in a dairy farmer's calendar. There are going to be a lot of pressures. How do you keep a lid on it? Yeah, exactly. Look, and it's easier said than done, all very well for me to say this, but, you know, there's a few things to think about. Firstly, you know, there's some practical things like can they take on some short-term staff, um, you know, and and I guess on that basis it's still not easy to find people, and I realise that, but one of the most important things is to look after yourself and your staff is, as best as you can, you know, and that means getting together and really getting in that huddle and actually looking after each other and talking, communicating, Jamie, is a big thing. You know, when you get under pressure, sometimes that goes out the, out the window. So I think just keeping that morale up um, and having a really good work environment um, and celebrating some little milestones. Now, I know this might sound like telling people to suck eggs, but it's actually really important stuff. So that would be my message. Yeah, maybe having a beer in the dairy shed at five o'clock on a Friday is a team bonding exercise as well. Not that I'm encouraging the consumption of alcohol unless, of course, it's the Mackaiser from Emerson's. Hey, uh, Dr Tim Mackle, always good to catch up, and I mean it in all sincerity. Good on you fronting for the farming industry. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for your help too, Jamie. Cheers, mate. 27 after 12. Thanks, Tim. And look, thanks, Emerson's. I think we've, we're sold out, aren't we? Right? We are yeah. indeed. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So that's $1,750 so, going towards the Southland Charity Hospital. Fine, it's drop the Macaiser. Can't wait for the... It's the best thing that's ever happened with your Macaiser. What do you mean it's the best well, thing that's ever happened? we've been forced to listen to you going on about how you've got a beer named after you. Now it's finally done some good. And actually, I think it's about time I checked out Emerson's myself. It I'm, is. Have, have you not been to Emerson's yet? I've never been that, to Emerson's. A, have you been to the stadium yet? No. Uh, maybe years ago, but not recently. Yeah. We've got a bit of education to do, Jamie. Oh, take I'll it. No, take I, one for the team and take her to Emerson's. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> Anyhow, um, up next, uh, a man who has spent long hours at Emerson's, <laughs> never taking his own credit card with him, Andy Thompson and Craig Wiggins. It's today's panel. Mark Rivers from Fonterra, Graham Law before the end of the hour. Plus our Golden Gumboot Awards. What are we on today? We are on the best number eight wire solution. So this is thanks to Track Map Compliance Made Easy. It's just uh, trying to find out if there's a nifty gadget on your farm you can't live without or a bit of Kiwi ingenuity on farm, which there are so many examples around New Zealand. Well, look at the example that won at the Field Days. The Innovations yeah. Award the, was just uh, a spring on a... Bullcock arm. Yeah. Oh, just amazing. Real pain point for farmers. So if you have got something pretty cool on your farm, nominate it in the country's Golden Gumboots Award Best Number 8 Wild Solution. Thanks to Trap Map. Head to thecountry.co.nz. Click on the Win with the Country banner to start nominating. Good on you. There we go. Up next, today's panel. Join Brian Waddle and-
on Jeremy Coney each week as they discuss and dissect all the latest news from the cricketing world. New Zealand's best cricket podcast on the front foot. Do you think England bowled well at him? I sensed early on he struggled against the short ball. As soon as he got going and he realised the ball was moving, the trademark use of the crease coming over, we haven't seen that before, you and I. All the big issues, all the big names on the front foot. Listen and follow on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. News Talk ZB. Go directly inside the game with Rugby Direct. Listen each week to get the latest from the rugby world. Rugby Direct is the podcast for real rugby fans. Every angle, every moment, every opinion with Rugby Direct. Home for all things rugby. Call yourself a real rugby fan? Follow it on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Rugby Direct, powered by Newstalk ZB. I love Duran Duran. Do you I like know. Tessa? Have you heard of Duran Duran? Um, I no, you probably don't think haven't. I have. I don't You'll think know a song I, if I played it to I you. I don't think you're old enough. Never mind. <laughs> um, it's Moon Songs today. Neil Armstrong setting foot on the moon. 21st of July, our time. Three o'clock in the afternoon it was. Hmm. Great story, Jamie. Sorry, I've, I'm just I'm just reminiscing. I was I, I, I was there. I listened to it live. Can was, we get on with the show? Oh, okay. Sorry, Rowena. All right. Um, today's panel, Andy Thompson and Craig Wiggins. Now, they're coming to us from the badly affected flood regions. Andy is, of course, on the west coast. Up, up the road from where he lives is Buller. All sorts of problems there. And for Westport, Craig Wiggins is in mid-Canterbury. Wiggy, I'll start with you. You guys got hammered in, what, late May, early June with the floods. Now you've been hammered again. And some of those poor farmers are having to redo the fencing they redid. Yeah, and roads have gone missing again too up at Gorges. And, and um, yeah, it's just one of those things. You just It's a domino effect and, and you just can't get on top of it. And, and the last thing we need is more and more rain. I, I know the dry creek through Methan was running again this week and, and that's just, um, yeah, for that to be running means that there's uh, a fair bit of saturation going on. So it's, this is a long process we're going through and uh, those poor buggers over on the coast are in it now too. Hopefully there's a few lessons being learned from this side of the, um, as to how we deal with it in a hurry and, and how we get that infrastructure and get sorted out over there and support those people because it, it is pretty devastating. You just heard Tim Mackle talking about being under the pump um, going into into carving and that. Well, we're we're carving now. Just seeing the first few calves on the ground now. So uh, with a lack of staff, with a lack of everything going on and, and also um, fences and infrastructure, it's the perfect storm for a bad well-being. I don't know how I would handle it from a mental health point of view if I was some of those mid-Canterbury farmers. I think adrenaline can drive you through a flood or a snowstorm and you can see light at the end of the tunnel in terms of recovery. But when Mother Nature comes and kicks you in the arse again only a matter of weeks later, it must be so hard to pick yourself up off the canvas again. Yeah, it is, Jamie. And and, um, we ran an AgriConnect Day here a little while ago so that the rural service industry guys can spot those those signs of, of unwellness out there and, and know where to take those people, where to get those help and services. I'm um, doing another one in Fairly uh, next Tuesday, so if you're floating around and you're worried about your colleagues or your clients, make sure you come to that. But definitely, as Tim said, have a good look at your neighbour, talk to each other and uh, make sure you don't leave anyone out to dry. And you know, farmers around this area, some of the farmers that were worst affected were at jump the fence to help fix their neighbours' fences before their own. And um, I guess uh, that sort of 
deviated away from their own problems a little bit. But yeah, it's a, it's a case of just everybody helping out as much as they can. All right, let's head to the coast. Andy Thompson's over there. He does work when he's not broadcasting uh, on radio with Civil Defence. Andy, you had a very busy weekend. How's it playing out for those? Well, we've got the farmer who's lost up to, is it up to a thousand dairy cows? Yeah, Jamie, yeah, over the weekend I did act as uh, PIM in the um, EEC here in Greymouth. I'm not currently active. Uh, I've gone back to the day job, as you said. Um, But, um, look, I haven't seen a final number, and I'm not sure if we're going to know a final number for how many cows have actually lost yet, because you can imagine um, cows that have gone off the farm, some of them might have gone down the river and drowned, others might have swum out. Um, Farms, some cows might be in different herds. They're expect, I've heard numbers ranging from 1,000 to 1,500 cows that they believe have been lost. We've certainly seen those horrendous photos or video of all of those cows washed up on the beach north of Westport, which is, you know, just terrible, and that's being dealt with. And some, you know, that, that couple, we saw that footage of them going, just cutting the tags out so they can actually count. But the bottom line is, Jamie, it's, it's terrible what's happened. But I think the bigger picture, and I'm not sure if you've mentioned it yet, I'm sorry, but, you know, there is a real feed shortage. And um, mm. 08 MPI are coordinating feed. 0800 Farming is the number to ring if you've got some spare feed because we've got the issues, as you talked about, mid-Canterbury, we've got Nelson and Marlborough, and now the Buller. Um, all at the worst time of the year, imagine, all, there's no surplus feed around. So, yeah, we're, we're trying to coordinate at least some, if possible. Yeah, and also perhaps uh, giving... If a farmer's giving a replacement cow uh, to this farmer, was it just one, because it was Pete Morrison, who's the former uh, chairman of, of Westland Milk, was it just his property that lost all the dairy cows, or was it more widespread than that? Because I, I heard a, one of my dairy farming correspondents, Peter Allen, speaking on your show yesterday, Alan, uh, uh, and Andy, should I say, talking about some of the deer that had been lost. Yeah, look, I think um, we know that there was a big number of stock lost from Pete Morrison's farm uh, just in the in the top of the lower Buller Gorge. Um, anyone knows around the Berlins area, I think it's around that sort of area, just between Anangahua. And then um, further down, when the when the Buller comes out into the plains, or the flatland, sort of Buller River, I should say, coming towards uh, the Buller Township or Westport, there was certainly a whole lot of stock around there. Those farms all through there have been completely inundated. I think the main thing to remember too, Jamie, is that farmers did everything possible. They moved stock to high ground. It wasn't as if they ignored it. But when the rivers come up 10 metres, it, its peak flow was about 12.5 or 12.7 metres, close to 10,000 cumics. That, that Buller River generally runs around about 2.5 to 3 metres. So you're talking 9 to 10 metres of rise. No stock bank's ever that big. You know, like, just there's nothing they could do. And some, somehow something happened to these cows. They spooked. I've seen, heard that a couple of times. Even Damien said they spooked into the river, and the river was flowing that fast that just gone. Tragedy, not to mention what's happening in Westport and all the people without a home there. Yeah. It, it is real tough. All right, guys, hey, listen, we might have to love you and leave you. And, and Wiggy, just a final word from you. Thanks for your contribution there, Andy. You're doing a great job on the coast. You're the Rural Communicator of the Year, Wiggy. Well done for being awarded that at uh, Field Days. And you're going to need all your communication skills, I put it to you, over the next few months working with uh, the rural community because there's certainly some issues out there. Oh, there is, Jamie. And again, I guess communication is a big thing. You know, we, we've we been through a hell of a lot in the last few years, you know, with COVID and everything else. I think if we can all just keep uh, talking to each other and wrap each other up a little bit. Um, and don't be scared to ask some questions about how people are doing. 
Um, and the other thing is, if you've got the chance to donate some feed or do anything, um, it might only be one bale, but it'll be one bale that just helps ease that pressure. So, And thanks for your mention on that award, Jamie. I'm really still humbled by it all. It was well-deserved. Craig Wiggy Wiggins, Andy Thompson, today's panel. Take a break. Back with Rural News and Sports News. 20 away from one, you're with the country, Man Landed on the Moon. So many great moon songs. If you're going to write a pop song and make a hit, make it about the moon. Can we play Moon River by Andy Williams, please? Here's the latest in rural news. <laughs> the country's rural news with Lawnmaster. Hardworking products for hardworking Kiwis since 1946. Visit steelfort.co.nz for your local stockist. In rural news, don't forget to head to thecountry.co.nz. Click on the Win with the Country banner. There you can win. Thanks to the best number eight wire solution. Thanks to Track Map Compliance Made Easy. They have got an amazing prize on there that includes a year's subscription subscription to their track map. what is it? All their tools that you can use on farm for uh, compliance and also uh, just amazing technology. Uh, also in rural news, a non-profit Queenstown cat welfare group's trialling a programme. No, we're not having a cat story on it's the... It's a great cat story, no, Jamie. No, I'm not having a cat story. <laughs> Jane this London, is, no, our online editor, no, no, London, Jane, if I'd get that past No, you. no, I'm not having a cat story. <laughs> OK, Grumpy Boomer, here's sport. Sport with AFCO. Visit their new website at afco.co.nz. I hope my sister's not listening. She's a mad cat lady and a mad chook lady. Sorry about that, listeners, and all you cat fans out there. An offer too good to refuse for Patrick Tuipalotu. He has signed a deal with New Zealand Rugby and the Blues until 2025. The first All Black to do so. The 28-year-old has a playing sabbatical in Japan written in, which he'll take up later this year. He'll miss next year's Super Rugby season and return to New Zealand mid-year with some yen in his pocket. I just added that wee bit in. And Milwaukee are banishing any talk of becoming NBA basketball champions for the first time since 1971, two years after man landed on the moon, despite the opportunity to do so, or to do just that this afternoon. They host the Phoenix Suns in Game 6 of the finals, with the Bucks leading the best of seven series 3-2. Well, that was definitely more exciting than my cat story. That was way more exciting. Look, I found out what the track map uh, award is. I'm, I'm sick of Tip off is around one o'clock. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Uh, so Aren't it's you due a, for a holiday? It is a one-year TML subscription that includes GPS guidance for applying products, track map, online platform, providing full job management and proof of placement. There you go. Head to thecountry.co.nz, click on the Win with the Country banner, and you will be in the draw for that amazing prize thanks to track map. Mark Rivers from Fonterra next. Another drop in the GDT auction overnight. How's your $8 payout looking, farmers? We'll tell you next. Mark Rivers is the Chief Financial Officer for Fonterra. While overnight we had a global dairy trade auction, it was down 3%. Whole milk powder uh, faring worse at 3.8%. While the futures market might have suggested a better result than that, Mark Rivers, I put it to you that with this new Delta strain of COVID running amuck around the world, it's a bit of a sticky place at the moment to do business. Yeah, hi Jamie. Yeah, no, it was a little, little bit disappointing uh, the event, but uh, but not totally surprising. Uh, no doubt there are a few things hanging on on people's minds. You know, uh, to your point, uh, COVID certainly not over. The world's got a lot to go through yet. But on the other hand, the underlying demand at the consumer level, you know, we think continues to remain uh, you know pretty solid. 
and even at these price levels, remember, we're uh, we're still well above uh, the midpoint of the forecast for the new season. Mind you, eight of the last nine events have been down. We had that big spike in March of this year, and then we've only had one positive global dairy trade auction since then. That's true. We had the um, the big spike several events ago, and since then it's been sort of flat to slightly pull back. Um, but you know, again, this is in line with with what we're anticipating. Uh, you know, it's not that long ago we were at spot rates of, um, of above nine dollars, and so our you know we're still well within the range of what we're predicting for the new season. Our range is seven twenty five to eight seventy five. You know, that already anticipated that there would be some pullback, which we're seeing. So eight bucks is still on the cards. Uh, absolutely, 725 to 875 remains our forecast for the new season. So let's move from the global dairy trade auction. It's nice to hear, Mark Rivers, those reassuring words from the Chief Financial Officer of Fonterra. What about your new capital restructuring plan? You announced this in May, I think. Uh, the share price uh, has sort of gone down the toilet a wee bit. Is the cure worse than the disease? Uh, that's right. We've gone out with capital structure in May. We've gotten lots of really good feedback, and um, and we've come out now with some revised thinking. It just reflects a lot of the feedback that we're hearing. Um, but uh, what's great is the engagement has been really high. You know, this is a really important conversation uh, for the co-op to have, and we think it's uh, absolutely essential that we have it now. The goal really is how do we maintain having a financially strong and sustainable co-op going forward? That's most important. And key to that, is being able to maintain, you know, milk coming through the co-op. That's the lifeblood of the co-op. That's why we need to have the conversation about flexibility and how do we do that whilst maintaining ownership and control. Uh, so the conversation has been really good and, uh, you know, and we'll continue to listen and, and work through to find the right combination of things. So what's a possible time frame on this final question for you? I know you come out and announce your annual results around September. Is that when we'll get some clarity on this issue? Right. So we're aiming for a, a vote still in, in December at the at the annual meeting. But between now and then, we plan to come out with a bit more information about our strategy, because uh, clearly that's something we're hearing as well, is, uh, you know, give us a sense of, of what kind of business can we expect. And we're really confident in the strategy that we're on, and we want to we just share that confidence. Um, you know, it's a really good time to be in dairy, we think. There's, um, you know, continuous demand out there. We've got a great product that we're offering. And, and kind of the, the flip side to being in, in sort of flattish milk now is suddenly there's, uh, you know, there's now scarcity value, right? We can start to be a bit choosier about who we sell to, and we think that'll show up in great value uh, for the company going forward. Okay, Mark Rivers, Chief Financial Officer for Fonterra. I'm off to bank my $8 milk check for the coming season. We'll catch you next time we yarn on the country. Always appreciate your time. Thank you, Jamie. Cat Stevens talking about cat. We, we did get a cat story out in the end, but we won't go there because Rowena's going feral cat on me in the studio <laughs> during the ad break. Golden Gumboot Awards. Yeah, head to thecountry.co.nz. Click on the Win with the Country banner. Amazing prize up there from Track Map. It is the best number eight wire solution. Just tell us an example of Kiwi ingenuity on your farm. You're in to win.
Yeah, all these prizes are worth a grand. So follow our Golden Gumboots, nominate yourself or someone else, and you could be into one. Look, we're going to have to catch up with Graham Law uh, from Talpo on tomorrow's show. We'll talk to him. But we thought we would wind out today's show with another Graham. By popular demand, he's back from Monday's show. We leave you with Graham Williams. Dear Auntie Jacinda, a moment, if I may, a response I think is needed to the protest the other day. Farmers are generally too busy to rally and cause a stink, but their overwhelming response must have made you stop and think. You see, thinking has been lacking in your policies, I suggest, possibly economic incompetence and bureaucratic bullshit at its best. Your policies are from fairyland, hindering what the farmers they produce. I struggle with the economic logic of screwing the golden goose. You see, New Zealand has been founded on the farmers and the land, farming and economic strength symbiotically hand in hand. The reason isn't rocket science, be it veggie, milk or meat, irrespective of the daily grind, all the people they must eat. As we saw in COVID, panic buying to the fore, Wonder what you'll eat next time when farmers can't be farmers anymore. Choked by impractical bureaucracy, they all have had enough. Supermarkets full of humble pie. Hmm, the menu could be rough. A majority of the farmers are a cut above the rest. They understand the logic of not shitting in one's nest. The bar is constantly rising by peering over the fence. Labour, I suggest, should peer as well and view some common sense. Labour, in a literal sense, used to mean grafting in a role. Labour, in a current sense, means top pay on the dole. Screwing the diligent workforce, the productive and the hearty, sending the country down the gurgler, thanks to Jacinda's labourless party. The protest by diligent farmers for the country shouldn't shock. They nurture and protect the land infinitely better than Labour does with Doc. Instead of crippling progressive farmers and dictating them with force, I suggest leading the charge by example and controlling Doc's broom and gorse. So cheers to Laurie Patterson and Bryce McKenzie in the South. You did what needed doing, giving the cause the focus and the mouth. The golden goose is farming, and common sense there needs to be. Otherwise, the goose and country's completely plucked, but spelt with an F and not a P. Listen to Rugby Direct every week to get the lowdown on all you need to know from the rugby world. Rugby Direct has it all. All Blacks, Black Ferns, NPC and more. Listen to Rugby Direct, powered by Newstalk ZB on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. episode please leave us a review on itunes it's tuesday july 20th welcome to market foolery i'm chris hill with me today the one and only asa charma good to see you chris good to see you thanks for having me on 
we got an interesting show uh, today. We uh, we got market news. We have banking news. We're going to start with the story of the day, and that is Jeff Bezos going to space for a few minutes this morning. Um, he and the other folks on board the New Shepard took off shortly after 9 a.m. Eastern, landed safely in the Texas desert. Appropriate, because this is the anniversary of the moon landing. And this is one of those stories, Asit, that... Um, does not appear to have any immediate ripple effects for stock market investing. It seems much like uh, the entire venture of going to space. It seems like there will be long-term ripple effects. But I have to say, I'm not really a space nerd, and yet I was completely captivated watching this event this morning. Sure. You know, the immediate effect is one of wonder, for so many of us, um, I think as it was when Richard Branson went up just uh, you know, a few days ago, literally. I, it, it's something that we can never stop looking at in awe, the idea of going into space. Um, and it's inspiring, we, we should say that. But there's so many other stories rolled up into this. There's the personal bucket list for Jeff Bezos. He just crossed one off this morning. <laughs> There's also the question of what do you do with your own capital when you've amassed more than you could spend in in several lifetimes, actually more than probably half the planet could spend in several lifetimes. This is one answer to that question. But more to the point, uh, I think, you know, what what you're referring to, Chris, is this has some long-term implications. This is the second flight that we've had that's proving the concept of space tourism. Jeff Bezos and crew actually went a little higher than Richard Branson and his crew went. They exceeded what's called the Karman line. I hope I pronounced that correctly. So this is 62 miles above the earth. They're competing boundaries of of what actually constitutes leaving earth and getting into space. So Jeff Bezos has bragging rights temporarily for crossing a slightly higher line than the one recognized by NASA. But it's a story of capital allocation in the, the wider community. And of course, we can't ignore the various types of technologies that get honed when you have uh, big picture goals like this that we won't see where these applications go, but they'll be part of the tech story in the coming years. So much that's underneath the surface, <laughs> much above the surface, the surface of the atmosphere today. Yeah, and I, I know, that, look, I, I understand that the logical place to go in terms of investing is the whole space tourism thing, because that's the, that's probably the closest opportunity, um, as opposed to, oh, we're going we're gonna to be mining in space. And it's like, well, we, you know, the idea of mining asteroids, uh, I, I, I think anyone who's seen the movie, are, um, <laughs> easy for me to say, Armageddon, um, you know, you can wrap your head around that, but that just seems so far off as opposed to space tourism. And yet, um, it it does seem like the the opportunities um, might be more uh, for investors anyway. Might be more in essentially who who's going to be building these ships that are going to take people to space. You know, in the same way that um, you know you can invest in companies that make automotive components. Uh, it seems like the manufacturing might be um, an even better opportunity. 
It's a great point. And I go back to proof of concept. Once you can prove that there's a viable market for something, and, and I'm not sure that we actually know that there is a viable market for space tourism, there's some near-term demand. We'll have to see how this shakes out over the long term. But it does tend to shift lots of, of money into uh, technologies, into products, as you say, into manufacturing that uh, will end up anointing some winners Maybe they're not so visible, but fast forward 10 or 15, 20 years, it'll be commonplace, I think, Chris, to be able to invest in companies that just make booster rockets or just make uh, various portions of the navigation system. Just as today, you, you can invest in all phases of the electrical vehicle market. You can choose to buy Tesla or you can buy companies that just focus on making batteries. So I think, yes, that is something that we're going to see more and more of in the coming years. So this is just the beginning of a, a wide and long-term investing opportunity. NASDAQ Incorporated comes out tomorrow morning with their second quarter earnings, but uh, they're making headlines today. NASDAQ Inc. is teaming up with Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, and other banks to spin out its marketplace for shares of private companies. NASDAQ Private Market is going to become a separate standalone company. It's a trading platform for uh, private companies. And I, I'm assuming the goal here is to drive more transactions. Yeah, this is a very interesting business. NASDAQ, of course, specializes in the trading of public companies, but they've had this private market division, which essentially provides liquidity to companies that are in the pre-IPO stage. It's really hard to buy and sell blocks of shares within companies that have been growing rapidly, but don't yet have a public market. And NASDAQ has been an institutional facilitator, if I can throw a lot of syllables together, in this space, allowing people to trade blocks of shares. Of course, you've got to be an accredited investor, so not just anybody can participate in this private market. But it's been a, a growing business for NASDAQ, and I think it's one that will flourish with some new money from these partners and also the ability for the management team of this division to allocate its, its own resources and grow the business. They do have some competitors, and of course, there is a wave of, of companies that draw individual investors together and now crowdsource investments into private companies. But I like this move uh, from NASDAQ. I've been a fan of their CEO, Adina Friedman, who took over a few years ago. Chris, she's pushed this company from something beyond just a volume business that uh, existed on trading fees and, and needed volumes of, of trading to be higher each quarter to win into a company that increasingly is focused on analytics, providing data, providing software as a service to big institutional companies um, in security, data security. So, there are so many things when you look at NASDAQ today, so many pieces that really weren't uh, as prominent as they were a few years ago. And I just see this as another savvy move um, by Dina Friedman to unlock some value for shareholders. I think it's uh, a, going to be an interesting company. I'll really I think, look forward to pouring over its financials when that's made available. And I like the partners. Uh, SVB Group, that's uh, short for Silicon Valley Bank, a player in financial technology. And of course, Citi, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, you've got some big hitters coming in and participating in this company. So, it should be a fun one to watch. Well, and it also speaks to um, how investing 
has broadened over the years. We've seen the trend over the past two decades of fewer and fewer public companies in the markets. You go back 20 years, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 public companies. That number is now, I think, below 8,000. Uh, despite the fact that we've had, uh, you know, m- certainly more IPOs and more SPACs over the past 15 months than I would have guessed at the beginning of the pandemic, but I think this speaks to the the opportunity and really the appetite that investors are having in an increasing way for private companies. Um, you know, I, I think you and I were talking recently about the the whole notion of the word unicorn because a unicorn used to be a company that in the private markets reached a valuation of a billion dollars. And that's now really very commonplace. And so, this move to sort of raise the profile of NASDAQ private market, um, I, I think, speaks to the appetite of people looking for smaller companies that are private and, and looking for the investing opportunities. Yeah, and Chris, you know, it's only going to increase that trend that you were just mentioning. If you're a private company that has a culture management wants to preserve, and you'd love to stay private if you didn't have to go to the public markets asking for capital, this solution is custom built for you. You can stay private, provide liquidity to key employees who may want to sell some shares or or buy some more shares, and not have to have the burden of all the compliance that comes with being a public company or having to have follow-on offerings, secondary offerings of stock when you need to raise some capital, you could just do it through this market. So, they're actually furthering that trend, I think, giving some private companies the choice to stay private. Um, and I you know, just believe we're going to see fewer and fewer public companies as time goes on. Of course, the ones that remain, <laughs> they'll get bigger and bigger through consolidation. And uh, I also think that the uh, ability to generate cash flows due to a lot of innovation and technology is going to make the market cap of, of favorite companies just grow over time. So, it's not that the public markets will disappear, but it brings a lot more choice in for those who are running these companies. And I do think it gives investors choice. Now, again, before we leave this topic, you still have to be an accredited investor and have a certain net worth in most cases and a certain type of income to participate in opportunities like this. But I also believe that NASDAQ's spinoff of this private market will encourage more of the smaller competitors who don't have the accredited investor requirement to bring smaller investors into the fold to make investments in private companies. That's another evolving space to watch in this never-ending game of public and private markets. Before we leave NASDAQ Incorporated, shares up a couple percent this morning, hitting an all-time high. Anything in particular you're going to be watching when they report earnings tomorrow? I mean, it's among other things, the chart of NASDAQ Incorporated is just an advertisement for long-term investing. I mean, it's just a slow and steady march up and to the right. Yeah, I mean, they've, wow, over the last five years, on a total return basis, the NASDAQ has returned 193% to investors in a very quiet fashion. I, I think that as long as they continue this strategy of gradually raising their trading volumes while selling to their corporate customers new solutions, 
they're also uh, an acquirer. I think they'll continue to uh, have the operations churn out cash flows that push that slow, steady move to the right that you're talking about, upward curve on the stock chart. What I'll be watching tomorrow is just to see in a really weird quarter uh, where the markets were going up, but some growth stocks were having a lot of trouble, just to see what those uh, derivative trading volumes look like. Uh, the NASDAQ specializes in those. I'm also looking to see what the company's listings, that is its um, new issues, how that looked compared to the prior quarter. I think it'll be healthy. And I always keep my eye on two segments in particular, their investment intelligence segment and their market technology segment. These are the two segments I was sort of referring to loosely before the investments the company is making in non-trading activities that have great recurring revenue. You know, they lock customers into contracts, providing them data and analytics. That's a really great part of the business. And if you're an investor in NASDAQ, I think you want to be looking at that to make sure that those two segments are growing at a healthy clip because that's sort of the characteristic of this company that allows you to sleep at night, collect the dividends, and watch the, the stock just gradually increase, as, as Chris was talking about. Shares of Ally Financial up this morning. Second quarter profits came in higher than Wall Street was expecting. Anything in particular stand out uh, for you in terms of this quarter? Yes. So, you know, Ally is, um, and I never know how to pronounce it, Chris. This is yet another one that we have to figure out the pronunciation to. Is it Ally or Ally? I'm sure. I believe it's Ally because, and this is this is something I was going to ask you later, but I'll just ask you now. Uh, I believe it's Ally because their uh, television commercials, I think, pronounce it that way. And I find it interesting that they they really position themselves as a consumer finance bank. But I'm but and you know this business much better than I do. Is that just the part of their business they're trying to grow, or is that the most important part of their business? Because they've got the whole auto financing part of their business, and that's. That's sort of the origin of this company, I believe. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the auto financing is still a meaningful part. The auto financing part is is still huge. Um, they had auto originations or new loan originations of almost 13 billion bucks uh, this quarter from a record um, applications that were. Provided a decision on 3.5 million decisioned applications is the term. That's the term I was reaching for. So yeah, the that consumer auto business is really huge. But I think you're onto something there, Chris. In that management is watching uh, where the growth is occurring, and they're pouring more money into it. They're advertising more on that retail bank side, on the retail brokerage side, and we shouldn't forget that Ally also has a, a mortgage business. So they don't look a lot different than some community banks. If you go to the the homepage of your community bank, you'll see all these services offered, right? Auto loans, personal loans, banking services, uh, mortgages, except they do it at a pretty vast scale, as, as I was just mentioning. And I think that what is surprising for investors is that the smaller pieces of the company's business, such as its insurance, um, its retail brokerage, its deposits business, just the whole business of getting in customer deposits to grow the banking business, all those have really been uh, growing at a double-digit pace 
this quarter, sort of the headline on their earnings report is a 24% return on common equity. This is a banking metric. 24% is really high. They had 900 million bucks in net income. So you're looking at a company which is taking a consumer facing, very simple business model and just blowing it up in all kinds of meaningful ways. And, and we should mention here, Chris, this is another company that has very quietly rewarded shareholders. I was also looking at the five-year chart of Ally this morning. Just a tad bit better performance than NASDAQ over the past five years. 220% total return over the last five years for shareholders. Um, do you follow this one uh, at all or, or own shares? I don't own shares. I'm kicking myself that I don't. But I don't own shares. It's you know a, a few years ago, I was looking at the financial industry because it was one of those things where I just thought, I I, I wonder if I should have some shares of a bank, and it's not going to be. I know it's not going to be one of the big Wall Street banks that uh, you know depends on institutional trading and that and that sort of thing. But you know, I'm not knocking those businesses. I'm just saying my area of expertise doesn't mesh well with that industry. Um, and so, I did take a look at Ally Financial. I don't remember why I didn't pull the trigger on it, but um, but it was it was definitely uh, at a time when they were doing a huge push around being a, a consumer-friendly bank. And I think, you know, you know what it might have been? It might have been around the time that Wells Fargo was having one of their quote-unquote, uh, ethical challenges in terms of like, oh, we're right. just going to create fake accounts for millions of customers. Yeah, finding a, a good bank, one that you uh, believe in and you believe in management, is harder than it looks. It, a few things about Ally, which really stand out after a few years, Chris, um, if you were looking for a type of bank to invest in and you're trying to figure out, do I invest in really small banks or these big banks? There were numerous choices in the middle, that is, banks that do a little bit of everything. Ally is one. But, you know, Synchrony Financial was also sort of an interesting uh, competitor, is an interesting competitor. They focus more on the consumer credit side of the equation. So, they provide the nuts and bolts for big companies to have their loyalty credit cards, etc. Um, that business that Synchrony has is just not as diversified, and they've had their struggles. So, when you see Ally's earnings this morning, you get a sense of how many weapons it has in its arsenal. I also wanted to say about this earnings report, lastly, is that uh, you know we've been hearing, and, and you and I have discussed on Market Foolery, how much demand there is for used cars and new, new cars, and why the prices of all cars are going up. Part of it is due to this computer chip shortage. I think these earnings today... Um, also speak to that. I mean, this was the headline uh, or the, the lead of the company's press release. It's consumer auto originations loans that I uh, mentioned at the very outset and that record number of applications. This whole business is sort of on fire, whether you participate in the car selling business or the lending business. At some time, it's going to return to normal, but just now we, we are still looking at such a big imbalance between supply and demand in, in both the new and the used car industry. A continuing story this year. Definitely something to keep watching. Asa Charma, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. So much fun. I really appreciate it, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against 
So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Join Wondery Plus to listen to Business Wars one week early and ad-free in the Wondery app. Download the Wondery app in your Apple or Google Play mobile app store today. A special note to listeners, this episode contains adult content and language. It's 1993 at Bacardi's global headquarters in Hamilton, Bermuda. CEO Manuel Jorge Cutias lights a cigar and gazes at a burbling pool of water with Bacardi's trademark black bat painted on the bottom. The logo dates to 1862, when Cutias's great-grandfather and the company's founder, Facundo Bacardi, began using the bat as the guiding symbol for his new rum. The barrel-chested Cutias is 61 years old. He fled Cuba in 1960 aboard a rickety boat that nearly sank before reaching its destination. He's lost in his memories when he hears his top salesman, Juan Prado, also a Cuban exile, strolling toward him, firing up his own cigar. What are you smoking, MJC? A Cubano? Those on good terms with Cutillo call him MJC. Come on, you know I don't smoke Cubanos. There's no consistency. That's what you get with communism. Yeah, communism. But we have a more pressing problem we need to talk about. Pernod Ricard. Just one month ago, Pernod Ricard struck a deal with the Cuban government to equally split ownership for the coveted Havana Club rum. The once premium brand has had a hard time reaching drinkers outside the old Soviet bloc under Castro's regime. But the French company has brought in its muscle to market the rum globally. Okay, out with it, Juan. They've started making Havana Club in the old Bacardi distillery in Santiago de Cuba. Cutillas frowns and exhales a large plume of smoke. I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. You're telling me that they're making Havana Club at our distillery on Matadero, where you and I used to make Bacardi rum? The distillery my great-great-grandfather built? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Son of a... It's one thing for the French to get in bed with Castro, but to use our stolen assets to compete against us? That's too far. Cutias chomps hard on his cigar and storms off. Smoke trails behind him. He grabs a phone inside a nearby conference room and calls Robert Maxwell, the head of a U.S. association of spirits importers. Robert, Manuel Cutias at Bacardi here. Hey, MJC, what can I do for you? You can help me spread a message. Pernod Ricard and Cuba are making Havana Club in Bacardi's distillery in Santiago. What? I did not survive escaping Cuba just to see Castro and some French company use my family's property against Bacardi. Anyone who profits from Havana Club by using Bacardi's confiscated assets is going to get sued into the ground. I'm on your side, MJC, but you know there's an embargo here. 
No one in the U.S., at least, can buy Havana Club no matter where it's made. That's true. But the embargo won't last forever. So you tell everyone you know. When that day comes, we'll sue to keep Pernod Ricard from selling Havana Club in the United States. For Coutillas and Bacardi, the fight is personal. And they are prepared to do whatever it takes to win. As the battle escalates, it will reach the highest levels in Washington and will quite literally draw heavy firepower. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business and be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode of our series, Bacardi versus Pernod Ricard, Bacardi became America's favorite rum thanks to U.S. prohibition. Meanwhile, two rival French distillers, Pernod and Ricard, joined forces to create a spirits juggernaut bent on global domination. Now, the two companies are ready to battle over the crown jewel, the U.S. rights to Havana Club. This is episode three bat out of hell. It's the winter of 1993, Paris. Patrick Ricard, the CEO of French spirits giant Pernod Ricard, sits down for dinner in a bistro with a team of his executives. Waiter, a Ricard, please. Right away. Moments later, the waiter places several glasses of green liquid in front of the men at the table. He also plops down a jug of water. It's emblazoned with a logo for Ricard Pastis, a brand Patrick's father created 61 years ago. Patrick raises his glass to toast. Let's drink to my father and to warmer days in the south of France. We'll have our pastis his way. Five parts water to one part Ricard. The executive seated next to Patrick leans in to ask a question. Patrick, I've always wondered, what would you have done if you hadn't joined your father's company? <laughs> that wasn't an option. Papa would have seen it as a betrayal if I hadn't joined. 
Patrick has built his father's small French liquor brand into an international giant. In 1988, he led the acquisition of Irish Distillers, the company that makes Jameson and Bushmills. But his real coup was acquiring half of Cuba's Havana Club. Patrick Ricard looks up at his team, wordlessly calling attention to himself. Okay, everyone, let's talk business. Now, there's something missing in our partnership with Cuba for Havana Club. The Arechibala family created the brand, and they should get something from us. The Arechibalas have already written to Pernod Ricard to object to the deal the company struck with Cuba. One executive shakes his head. Patrick, I don't know if we should do that. The Arechibalas gave up their brand decades ago. Offering them something might make them think they're entitled to more. And what if they become litigious? Patrick Ricard sips his pastis slowly. A payout might head off a lawsuit. And my father taught me to do the right thing by people. The Arechibalas hate Castro for taking Havana Club. I don't want them harboring the same animosity toward Pernod Ricard. Days later, at a tapas bar in Madrid, a Pernod Ricard lawyer is meeting with several members of the Arechibala family, which fled to Spain in 1960 when the Castro regime nationalized their rum business. The lawyer makes an offer to the patriarch of the family, Jose Maria Arechibala Rodrigo, who glares at the lawyer. This is a joke. You're offering us peanuts for our rum. $100,000 is not peanuts, sir. It's a fair offer for a brand you abandoned 30 years ago. No, 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 no. Havana Club is still ours. You can't make real Havana Club without us. We have the family secret recipe. You don't have that, and neither does Castro. If this secret formula was so special, sir, why didn't you keep making it? Why didn't you pay to renew the trademarks for Havana Club? You let the U.S. trademark lapse 20 years ago, and you never tried to regain it. We let the trademarks lapse because we were rebuilding our lives. We had no money to make rum. Now, the attorney is disgusted. Oh, come on. You could have renewed the U.S. trademark fee for a lousy $25. All you had to do was file the papers. You didn't even have to make any rum. The Cuban government got the rights to the trademark in 1976 because you let it go. The attorney takes a deep breath, calming himself. Look, Pernod Ricard doesn't have to offer you any money because our deal with Cuba is legal. Do you understand? The trademarks we own are legal. You have no claim on the brand. So please understand we're offering you money in good faith. Please accept. Absolutely not. Your offer is ridiculously low. We can do better. When the meeting abruptly ends, the Arechebalas haven't told the attorney something important. They've already spoken to another suitor. This new player isn't just interested in the rights to the Havana Club name. They plan to reproduce the family's secret formula. And that suitor is Havana Club's old rival, Bacardi. It's February 1994 at a tapas bar in Madrid. Bacardi's CEO, Manuel Jorge Cutillas, digs into a plate of prawns and garlic sauce. He's seated with members of the Arechibala family. 
Bottles of Cuban-made Havana Club line a shelf behind the bar. But the glass in front of Cutillas contains Bacardi rum and a Coca-Cola with a wedge of lime. I'd like to propose a toast, amigos, to a Cuba free of Castro. Por Cuba Libre. Cuba Libre. Now, let's talk about Havana Club. I hear Pernod Ricard made you a generous offer for your brand. Jose Maria Arechebala Rodrigo snickers, recalling the insulting offer. Gutierrez dabs his mouth with a napkin and looks up. You did the right thing, Jose. You shouldn't accept what the Castro regime did to your family. We Bacardis will never accept it either. Cuba stole our property and they should pay a price. I know your nephew Ramon wrote a letter saying just that to Patrick Ricard. Ramon Arechebala sits across the table from Cutillas. He's 59 and has a full head of gray hair, dark black eyebrows, and a cockeyed smile. Cutillas and Ramon are only three years apart. Both were forced to flee the island or face imprisonment. Ramon nods at Cutillas' remarks. You know, I've wanted to make Havana Club again for years. I just never had the money. But Castro made a serious mistake. He's managed to turn rival companies into allies. And together, our two families can bring Havana Club back to life. So now here we are. And I have one question for you, MJC. How are you going to do it? Cutillas stabs a shrimp with his fork and points it at Ramon. Do you still know the family formula? I'll never forget it. I know the yeast we used, the fermentation process, the different distillates... I know what we look for in the heads and the tails of the distillates, the types of barrels we used in aging, and exactly how we blended to achieve our family's flavor profile. I know a little something about that kind of process, too. (laughs) And I also know about secrets. Even today, only a few people at Bacardi know our exact formula for making our rum. I'm sure you won't tell me yours, but I will tell you mine. I just want the right price and a guarantee. I want you to actually make it. I want you to bring our Havana Club back. I promise you we'll make it. How's 1.25 million and a share in the profit sound? It sounds like a deal. Ramon stands and stretches out his hand. Both men shake on it. There are no lawyers here, so we'll have to call this a gentleman's agreement for now. The contracts will take time to draw up, but we'll be ready to distill. Gutierrez excuses himself and heads out to the narrow street in front of the tapas bar. He picks up a payphone. He dials the head of Bacardi's distillery in Nassau. Yeah, boss, what can I do for you? I just met with the Arechewala family. They're going to sell us the Havana Club brand and recipe like we'd hoped. Get me a production line freed up. I want us making their Havana Club pronto. But there's a big problem. There's already a Havana Club on the global market. It's sold in Madrid and in Canada and all over Eastern Europe. And with Pernod Ricard's marketing prowess, it's becoming more popular by the day. Pernod Ricard's top executives believe the brand belongs to them and to Cuba. So they figure they have the upper hand. That seems logical. But they underestimate Bacardi's will and cunning. We get support from NetSuite. School's out for summer, 
But NetSuite is here to remind you that if your business is running on QuickBooks, you'll never get a break. QuickBooks manual processes, integration difficulties, and glitchy delays will leave you scrambling for the numbers you need. Failing to graduate to NetSuite will leave you stuck in summer school while your friends party. NetSuite by Oracle is the number one cloud financial system, no matter how big your business grows. NetSuite gives you invaluable visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. NetSuite is basically everything you need to grow, all in one place. So come on, what are you waiting for? Automate your processes with NetSuite and close your books in no time. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control since graduating from QuickBooks to NetSuite. And now's a great time to check out NetSuite because special financing is back. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program only for those ready to graduate today. Head over to netsuite.com slash wars right now. That's special financing at netsuite.com slash wars. netsuite.com slash wars. Hey, if you're a business owner who's hiring, you probably face a lot of challenges when it comes to finding the right person for your role. Either there aren't enough applicants with the right skills or experience, or there are too many resumes to sort through, or maybe you just don't know where to post your job to reach the right people. Hiring can feel like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Oh, sure, you can post your job to some job board, but then all you can do is hope the right person comes along, which is why you should try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com BW. You see, when you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites with just one click. Then their matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the very first day. It's no wonder over 2.3 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. So while other companies overwhelm you with way too many options, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for. <laughs> the needle in the haystack. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address. Listen up. ZipRecruiter.com slash BW. One more time, this is the place to go to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash BW. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It's a steamy Miami afternoon in April 1995. Juan Prado places a call. He's a former Bacardi sales director who's been tasked with helping to direct the company's Cuba policy. He calls Bacardi CEO Manuel Jorge Cutillas in the Bahamas with a proposition. There's a political fundraiser coming up in Miami for Jesse Helms. The North Carolina senator is co-sponsoring the Helms-Burton Act. The fundraiser is $500 a plate, and Prado is not sure how many to buy. For months, Bacardi has been stuffing a lot of money into political coffers, hoping to influence U.S. policy toward Cuba. And the politicians have been receptive. Bacardi's lawyers are even helping Helms' office draft the language of the Helms-Burton bill. A key provision will let Cuban-Americans sue anyone using property in Cuba that had been seized from them. 
and that includes a lot of people named Bacardi. There must be something like 500 Bacardis who are now Americans. That's a lot of potential claims. Yeah, and Ramon Anechewala is an American, too. If he sues for the Havana Club brand, the lawyers tell me he could scuttle the whole deal between Pernod Ricard and Cuba. Then make sure that fundraiser is sold out. Prado executes his orders. A few weeks later, Senator Helms is introduced at the fundraiser by the president of Bacardi's USA division. The event raises $75,000 for Helms. Two months after the fundraiser, the Helms-Burton bill passes a House committee. It's formerly known as the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Act, but many in Washington call it the Bacardi Bill. As soon as the new legislation passes, Juan Prado is at his desk in the modernist office tower Bacardi has constructed in Miami. He's plotting his next move when his secretary calls. A reporter is on the line. Mr. Prado, everyone is saying that Bacardi is single-handedly pushing this bill forward. What do you say? That's absurd. Bacardi doesn't have the wherewithal to be that influential. Compared to the Exxons and IBMs of the world, we're peanuts. Unfortunately for Bacardi, peanuts aren't enough to grease the wheels of American democracy. As the weeks go on, Helms-Burton stalls in the Senate because Democrats don't like that the legislation will antagonize U.S. allies with interests in Cuba. Neither does President Bill Clinton. If the Bacardi bill is going to become law, something dramatic needs to happen. And it will, in the clear blue skies between Florida and Cuba. It's February 1996. Three twin-engine Cessna Skymasters are flying in formation, headed south toward Cuba. The wings are mounted high, giving the pilot broad vision below, allowing him to skim the craft just a few thousand feet over the rippling Caribbean Sea. The planes close in on the 24th parallel of latitude, just 40 miles north of Havana. Cuba has been conducting military operations in the area and has warned it couldn't guarantee the safety of aircraft flying there without a flight plan. Air traffic controllers in Cuba contact the approaching pilots. Pilots, be informed that you'll be in danger if you fly over the 24th parallel. Roger that, Havana Center. We know we're in danger each time we cross south of the 24th, but we're willing to do it. It's our right as free Cubans. The Cessna pilots are part of a group called Brothers to the Rescue. They help guide Cuban refugees fleeing to the U.S. in makeshift boats. The group has been flying these rescue missions routinely for the past five years. But today, nothing is routine. As the brothers search for refugees, two Russian-made MiG fighter jets scramble into the air from a base near Havana. Within minutes, they're circling above the slower, smaller, unarmed Cessnas. The fighter pilots report back to military commanders. The objective is in sight. It's a Cessna 337. We're locked on. Military control, give us the authorization. Come on, give us the authorization. Authorized to destroy. First shot away. 
The MiG fires a missile toward one of the three Cessnas. It finds its target. We hit him! Jesus! We blew his balls off! We blew his balls off! Minutes later, the same fighter plane has another Cessna in sight and fires a second missile. It also hits. The other one is destroyed. Homelander death, you bastards! All four people above the other two planes are killed. But the Cuban fighters lose sight of the third Cessna, which speeds safely back to Florida. In the United States, the attacks immediately spark outrage. Within weeks, there are calls to punish the Castro regime, and the resulting fury stokes support for the McCarty Bill. In March, President Bill Clinton signs into law the Helms-Burton Act, the one he once opposed. But there's a catch. To cool the heat of the moment, Clinton puts the provision giving Cuban-American exiles the right to sue on ice for six months. That takes the teeth out of the Bacardi Bill, at least temporarily. But Bacardi will soon find other ways to bite back against Cuba. It's November 1996. In his office in Paris, Pernod Ricard CEO Patrick Ricard unbuttons his double-breasted gray suit, revealing both his wide waistline and an expensive silk tie. He offers his guest a seat. He's Pernod Ricard's top attorney, Pierre-Marie Chateauneuf. The men fold themselves into a pair of leather club chairs and get down to business. Are we done with this Bacardi bill, Pierre? I think as long as Clinton is in office, we are. But Bacardi's bought a lot of friends in Washington lately, so that could change. But we've got other ways to fight. Bacardi has shipped 900 cases of their so-called Havana Club rum to the United States. But we share the U.S. trademark for Havana Club with Cuba. We, oui, monsieur. We got a new license for that trademark from the U.S. government just last year. The brand is ours. Still, Ricard senses a trap. 916 cases is nothing. Bacardi probably spills more rum than that in a month. They're baiting us into this. I agree, sir. But whatever they're up to, we're in the right and we're going to win. What Pernod Ricard doesn't know is that at this very moment, Bacardi is working on something new in Washington. They're plotting a powerful political sucker punch. And Pernod Ricard will never see it coming. From Wondery, this is Episode 3 of Bacardi vs. Pernod Ricard for Business Wars. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Follow Business Wars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Listen ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. You'll also find some links and offers from our sponsors in the episode notes. Supporting them helps us keep offering our shows for free. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at wondery.com survey and tell us which business stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about recreations you've been hearing. In most cases, we can't know exactly what was said at the time. Those scenes are dramatizations, but they're based on historical research. And we use many sources when researching our stories, but we especially recommend Tom Jelton's Bacardi and the Long Fight for Cuba and Peter Foster's 
Family Spirits, The Bacardi Saga. I'm your host, David Brown. Joseph Guinto wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Voice acting by Chris Garcia. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Kate Young is our associate producer. Our producer is Dave Schilling. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez. For Wondery. Looking for the hottest takes and the spiciest celebrity gossip? Look no further. Welcome to Rich and Daily, the all-new podcast from Wondery that's going to bring you up to speed on all of Hollywood's most current secrets and scandals. Need to know what Harry and Meghan are up to? What's the latest in Britney's conservatorship hearing? We've got you covered. I'm Arisha Skidmore-Williams, and along with my bestie and fellow celeb news fanatic, Brooke Sifrin, we're bringing you the latest entertainment gossip every Monday through Friday. Is that rumor you heard about Rihanna true? If it is, you better believe we'll have something to say about it. So if you want to be in the know about who's been seen with whom and who's in and who's out, join us on Rich and Daily, because we don't just listen to the rumor mill. We give you the celebrity facts as they happen. Listen to Rich and Daily on Amazon Music, or you can listen to episodes ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. With Rich and Daily, feel the gossip. Wondery, feel the story. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Audio Jungle. Audio Jungle. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.